Welcome to the audio blog of Brian the Babbler, the audio version of the written blogs at briantheBabbler.com. That's Brian spelled with a Y. We hope you find your time to be well spent, and now let's hear what this babbler wishes to say. August 20th, 2021. If it walks like a duck. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Proverbs chapter 9, verses 13 through 18. Picture this ridiculous scenario, if you will. I have two brown thumbs when it comes to gardening. Flowers, bushes, trees. Nothing is safe. I even killed a cactus once. Imagine if I took my two brown thumbs out to my garden to move some of my flowers that are wilting to better soil. I reach down towards the ground and yank out a few choice tulips, leaving the root and bulb in the rocky, dry soil. While pulling out my choice tulips, I inadvertently grab some weeds as well, due to being a brown thumber. I take the conglomeration of plants and weeds and dig a shallow grave, um, space. Dump them in the hole and voila, all finished. At first, my tulips don't look too bad. Passers-by may even compliment me on my work. But over time, my shoddy labor manifests itself when the weeds choke out the flowers. Eventually, all I have to show for my efforts are two patches of barren, dry ground that I destroyed. One from where I yanked the plants from their original location as they were minding their own business, in their new destination, where the hideous massacre is memorialized in a pile of dead plants, surrounded by a hideous arrangement of various and sundry weeds. I could have simply left my flowers intact by carefully removing the weeds from the location in which they were originally located. Ridiculous, isn't it? We're engaged in a similar experiment these days, where our history is being yanked out of context and transplanted as a basis to examine contemporary culture. One has to ask where all of this came from and where it is heading. I find the attention given to the subject of race somewhat exhausting and pathetic. There was a time where we were too busy enjoying the manifold mercies of God to be taken up with such things. Whether we realize such blessings are from him is another discussion for another day. But for now, Allen Iverson's famous press conference of 20 years ago comes to mind. It's just the way my mind works, I guess. I'm thinking to myself, here we are, talking about skin color in 2021. Skin color. Not what we have in common. Not issues of the heart, where the root of our problems reside. Not the risen Christ in whom such issues have their only hope for resolution. Nope. We're embroiled in a battle over the color of our skin and how it affects our culture, as if it is the most determinative factor in our society. 
So why am I writing about it, right? Why would I not keep my mouth shut in light of all the serious issues that plague our communities? After all, can we not walk and chew gum at the same time? Are we as Christians incapable of addressing eternity as well as one's plight on earth? How can we say we care for someone's soul when we have no concern for the life in the present age? Well, herein lies the problem. As long as we keep ignoring root causes, the more time passes by and the more misery we can expect. Most of the so-called scholarship and conversation around race, social justice, and their counterparts seems to take little to no account of man's universally fallen state. In fact, there seems to be an unwillingness to even attempt to discuss the history of our country with any degree of context, especially as it pertains to the inescapable pattern of universal slavery that was common throughout the world from the beginning of time. To make matters worse, any mention, let alone an objective consideration of God's sovereignty, seems to be a distant afterthought. Notwithstanding any serious attempt to apply a biblical approach to justice, all things considered, it comes as no surprise that in our arrogance, ignorance, and self-righteousness, we would categorize ourselves as having the ability to analyze our past apart from God's word. What makes me qualified to approach this topic? Spoiler alert. I am not qualified and neither are you. But for a few good laughs in the midst of this diatribe, I shall identify myself a bit since it's the 2021 thing to do. Let's see. I'm black and someone said that's important. Yet I have no definitive answer or conclusion for what ails us except a desperately wicked heart that occupies every man without exception. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9. As a Christian, I would describe myself as identifying most closely with Reformed Baptist theology. And oh yeah, let me not forget to tell you that I believe that both political parties are morally bankrupt. The one drastically more so than the other. I'll let you figure out which one that might be. Most of my childhood was spent in the suburbs, but I can also recall living for a short period of time in subsidized housing in neighborhoods that may be considered by many to be urban for what it's worth. I know what it's like to play in the woods behind my backyard, and I also know what it's like to hear gunshots down the street. My parents worked hard to get us to a place where we had the chance to succeed if we chose to take advantage of such opportunities. I've had the opportunity to serve and volunteer in various capacities in my lifetime, from participating in reading programs for kids to meeting with and walking with groups of guys at various county prisons throughout the area as a volunteer. So I don't know where that places me on the intersectionality continuum that we operate by these days. I liked it better when we simply spoke with one another, and the value of such discourse was simply weighed according to the amount of truth spoken, no matter whom it came from. Those were the good old days. So those are my credentials. No, I have not spent time poring over the volumes of books, essays, and material on critical legal studies, but I have been exposed enough to know a duck when I see it. Perhaps Frederick Douglass, whether knowingly or unknowingly, I'm not sure, said it best in his essay, What Shall Be Done With the Slaves If Emancipated? He wrote, This question has been answered 
and can be answered in many ways. Primarily, it is a question less for man than for God, less for human intellect than for the laws of nature to solve. Douglas seems to make a very clear distinction that the progress and prosperity of the black man in America would be primarily determined by God and secondarily determined by each individual. He went on to say the following, Our answer is, do nothing with them. Mind your business and let them mind theirs. Your doing with them is their greatest misfortune. They have been undone by your doings, and all they now ask and really have need of at your hands is just to let them alone. They suffer by every interference and succeed best by being let alone. This was written in 1862, over 150 years ago, when the stench of oppression would have still yet filled his nostrils. Intellectuals or Overlords But those much wiser than us thought it would be a worthwhile experiment to dissect our culture along a series of identifiers including race, gender, political affiliation, profession, religion, and, well, let's wait and see. I would love for someone to tell me of one good thing that has transpired from critical theory, but color me skeptical at this point. I can recall my first exposure to it, when a much more naive, gullible human being thought there is no way this foolishness could possibly gain a foothold among the body of Christ. Surely it would require something far more seductive than this to drive such a wedge between God's people. What a fool I was. I tried to ignore this subject for years, but I guess ignorance is not bliss after all. While I prefer to ignore the current call to have the conversation, it is impossible to avoid as it becomes more commonplace for many to believe that there is, always has been, and most likely will always be this cancerous tumor amongst even Christians in America, let alone our country itself, where systemic racism exists. Unless, of course, we embrace this experiment that we find ourselves in. I am really trying to understand it all, but I have come to the conclusion that the growing attention given to this notion may never make sense to me. And until I happen to stumble upon a coherent, fact-based explanation supporting the theory, instead of a gutless, shapeless, veiled series of assumptions, I plan to contest it, because that's what we are supposed to do with a theory that is unsubstantiated. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 Some will say my words lack grace, to which I would reply, let me see it in you first because many have become comfortable with making someone else responsible for someone else's station in life almost exclusively based on skin color, without the examination of any of the myriad of other possible factors, with few exceptions. Much noise has been made positing that those who criticize the various social justice movements don't understand them, but at this point, if it walks like a duck, don't blame others for calling it a duck. You can clear things up by stating clearly what your solution is, but you won't, just to be pragmatic for a moment. Meanwhile, what have our efforts produced after all the blood, sweat, and tear gas? We now have the worst violent crime rates in decades. Some of you will say that's on BLM. Nope. 
It's on anyone duped by the idea or concept that some sort of reckoning was due in this country. And to those crying the blues regarding those who see similarities of this movement to Marxism, once again, do not blame those who know what a duck looks like. Us common folk may be somewhat incapable of fully understanding the scholarship of the Abraham Kendys, Robin DiAngelo's, Richard Delgado's, and James Cone's of the world, I suppose, but the results of their myopic view of society are unmistakable, even at this early point in implementation. The crime taking place across this country is at a crisis level, directly in the heart of the most vulnerable neighborhoods. Simultaneously, we are already seeing multiple cities backpedaling from their approach to policing while droves of officers are opting for early retirement. Last but not least, race relations are generally worse than they have been in decades. The most ironic part of it all is that this is most likely just the commencement of what is yet to come. Proverbs 9 contrasts folly and wisdom wonderfully. Both present themselves as open for business, but they are polar opposites. I'm not sure I can improve upon the commentary of the Expositor's Bible in this case. It reads, There is a kind of competition between wisdom and folly, between righteousness and sin, between virtue and vice, and the allurements of the two are disposed in an intentional parallelism. The coloring and arrangement are of such a kind that it becomes incredible how any sensible person, or for that matter, even the simple himself, could for a moment hesitate between the noble form of wisdom and the meretricious attractions of folly. The two voices are heard in the high places of the city. Each of them invites the passers-by, especially the simple and unsophisticated, the one into her fair palace, the other into her foul and deadly house. The words of their invitation are very similar. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. As for him that is void of understanding, she saith to him. But how different is the burden of the two messages? Wisdom offers life, but is silent about enjoyment. Folly offers enjoyment, but says nothing of the death which must surely ensue. My question to you, reader, is this. There are essentially two houses. In which house does this analytical tool reside? Which house do you intend to enter? Much of today's discussion regarding the challenges in our society center around individual people and their experiences. That's fine as a starting point, but oftentimes, that is the main thrust of the conversation. It's far more emotional than analytical, or even critical, to borrow an overused term. In other words, there does not seem to be much of an interest in assessing statistical data or even a fair assessment of the effects that history has produced, not just in America, but throughout the entire world. This is an irrational approach to take to such a complex problem. Have we ever considered that in the midst of the disparities that exist, not just in the West, but literally throughout the entire Earth, that perhaps our focus is misguided? It's almost as if God's will is an afterthought in such discussions. You will not find an inordinate amount of attention directed at disproportionate outcomes in the Bible. It's just not there. 
However, we do see the body contributing to the well-being of their brothers and sisters locally and abroad, to be sure, but not in such a way to seek to extract something from one another. Nor do we see a pattern where it becomes a campaign to dissect the sins of previous generations and apply them to the fellowship in a contemporary context. The solutions that have arisen as a result of this approach almost seem to have a let's see if it works type of feel to them, and the result up to this point is rather predictable. A power struggle. At this point, most conversations are comprised of one side reacting to the other, one side saying something offensive, then the other side does the same. What was once a journey that we were partaking of together now seems more like an endless march through the wilderness in a circle leading to a dead end. And some of you know better. Some of you are pastors and elders who interact with the flock on a regular basis. Some of you, not all, but far too many, have chosen to make race the focal point of your ministries. I believe that many of you know that racism is not the main problem plaguing the communities in which we reside, yet it seems that subject has the loudest voice in the public square, reminiscent of the woman in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 13. Let me make myself clear. Some of the loudest proponents are nothing more than opportunists, plain and simple. Many enjoy their rhetoric because it soothes their own craving to affirm their ideologies, especially as it pertains to race. This is the exact same playbook used in politics for decades to the detriment of those who partake of it. Respectfully, I ask, why would you do this? Are you afraid to face your congregations with a view that may not align with the prevailing thought in your communities? Do you believe that by agreeing with this faulty ideology that you will maintain unity within your congregations? Maybe some of the main people that have influenced your Christian walk, who have now devoted themselves almost exclusively to this social work, have influenced you to move in the same direction, or at least to some degree. Perhaps some of you do not see the damage and destruction already caused by this so-called tool. Either you are pretending that there is nothing to see here, we are willingly wearing blinders. Some of you say that the terms whiteness and white privilege are shorthand to explain a pervasive element in American culture, simply due to the history of Western culture, all while ignoring the entire scope of human history that has been subject to the same things in various forms, literally since the beginning of time. But you say that it's different here in America. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Well, the Aztecs were different. The Mayans were different. It was different in the Ukraine. It was different in Nazi Germany. It was different in South Africa. Get the picture? You say that your solution does not necessarily involve any particular race, but a government that instituted the system that created, supported, and perpetuated a series of atrocities, both in the past and present. You say that businesses have unfairly profited from such things. You say that both should be held responsible. Please explain how you hold a government responsible that does not possess and never will possess the capital to be able to make the oppressed that you speak of whole. Please explain how a company is forced to redistribute its windfall profits without it being passed on to consumers. It can't. 
not without violating the citizens, thereby making the entire country guilty for the sins of another. It's amazing to me that if you disagree with one's interpretation of the effects of race and culture, you can anticipate being labeled as unloving and uncaring, that it would be better to say nothing at all. But we've already witnessed the result of saying nothing. Over the last several decades, this ideology has seeped into the cracks and crevices of American culture unabated, and now it seeks to destroy the little bit of concrete that remains under our feet. So congratulations. The current rhetoric views the ills of society almost exclusively through an oppressed oppressor paradigm. This paradigm is being taught to elementary school children in many of our public schools. Does anyone else find it ironic that many children struggle to read at a proficient level, but it's considered time well spent to indoctrinate them? I cannot imagine a generation of kids being taught that they live in an utterly hopeless society where your fellow man, based on his skin color, is someone to be envied and to exact or extract something from them in in the name of equity. But then again, we are already witnessing the results of such poisonous philosophy in full-grown adults. Such purveyors of this type of indoctrination may find their neck to be extra heavy on the day of judgment for such abuses upon the next generation. Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. This contemporary style of justice teaches us that the world owes us something. It doesn't. Apart from repentance and faith in Christ, we are all owed hell. John chapter 3, verse 18. Period. We have a woeful misunderstanding of the difference between what we have declared to be a right and that which is a gift. If we encounter a circumstance where racism, oppression, or the like can be substantiated, then by all means let us deal with it within the church so that reconciliation takes place. No, it may not result in a tangible change in the financial or even judicial outcome in the life of another, or maybe it will. But we will be able to say that we want our brother, or conversely, we may need to reluctantly turn them over to Satan. But please do not drag a group of people into condemnation based on the actions of folks who are six feet in the dirt from centuries ago. Perhaps we should ask ourselves, is the way forward based on avoiding the age-old adage to not become so heavenly-minded that we are no earthly good? Or maybe we have things inverted having forgotten that our devotion to God, our dependence upon His truth, and our obedience to His will is the fuel by which the lampstand continues to shine brightly.